Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 109 of the Speaking Club podcast. Just when you think the world can't get any crazier, people are stockpiling toilet paper because of the coronavirus. Why toilet paper? It's not something I'd directly associate with survival. They weren't leaping into life bloats, clutching loo roll on the Titanic. I'm pretty sure the last thing the people of Pompeii were thinking about was pooping. I don't even think diarrhoea is a symptom of COVID-19. So it seems whatever happens with this virus, one of the biggest casualties are going to be the trees. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. don't know about you, but I've certainly second-guessed and doubted myself. And many times I've wondered whether I'm good enough. And I'm sure that all of this has got in the way of me taking action and achieving goals in the past, or at very least, slowed me down. In speaking, whether that's on stage, in a webinar, video or on a podcast, imposter syndrome rears its head often. And that's why a big part of my work with students and on here is helping you manage and master your mindset. And that's why I invited Claire Yosa onto the show this week. And I know you're going to love it. Claire is the UK's leading authority on imposter syndrome, having spent the past 15 years working with business leaders to help them to overcome it, as well as leading the landmark 2019 Imposter Syndrome Research Study and publishing her new book, Ditching Imposter Syndrome. She's also an expert in the neuroscience and psychology of performance, an ex-engineer, she's written eight books, and she speaks internationally on how to change the world by changing yourself. And even with all that, Claire has suffered from imposter syndrome too. But of course, she's ditched it. And how she did that is what we're going to be talking about today and lots more. Before that though, I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this podcast on release day, that's Thursday 12th of March, then you still have a chance to grab a spot on one of the two remaining live training workshops I'm doing on how to use my six-step heart map blueprint to grow your audience using stories and humour. And this map is the foundation of my story-led speaking programme and I'm even going to be giving you a copy of the map to take away with you. Over 100 people joined me on the workshop yesterday. We had a blast. So if you want to accelerate your speaking game, don't let anything stop you taking action and joining me. And you can do that over at thespeakingclub.com slash masterclass. And if you're listening after Friday, the 13th, and you're too late, you can get on the waiting list for the next live training, which I'm aiming to do sometime in the summer. Cool. Let's crack on with the interview. Claire Yosa, welcome to the Speaking Club podcast. Thank you, Sarah. It's great to be here. So the first thing I want to ask you is, what do you love most about what you do today? Okay. So what I love most is speaking. (laughs) I love being on stage. I'm very aware that I'm very blessed in that you give me a microphone, bright lights and an audience, and I come to life rather than being filled with terror. And I'm very aware that that's not how most people feel. 
So I feel very blessed with that. Um, There is nothing like giving a talk to an audience or running a training course and seeing the light bulbs and realizing that person's perspective and experience of life has changed forever. Yeah. And that there cannot be a bigger thrill than wanting to make a difference and then being there face to face with people and seeing that difference happen live. And in the space you work in, which we'll come on to, that change can be quite profound, I'd imagine. Definitely. Definitely. So in the space of a 20 minute talk, you can have someone completely realize that they can be in control of their own lives or they can change the way they see difficult people around them or they can shift the way they've been approaching a promotion or you know they can have that insight that means things like imposter syndrome are no longer the millstone around their neck the light bulb will be different and what i've really learned as a speaker is i can't be attached to which light bulb they take away (laughs) (laughs) because i just feel like we have to sow the seeds And if the ground is ripe and fertile in a member of the audience, that can grow into a full-blown plant by the end of a talk. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is this is the thing. Although we need to be intentional about where we want the audience to get to, you know, people go at their own pace in a sense. So cool. Now I I I I expect I know the answer to this question, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. (laughs) Was this what you envisaged you'd be doing when you started your career? So I have a master's degree in mechanical engineering in German, and I studied engineering because I wanted to know why the cylinders in car engines fire in the order that they do. And my (laughs) physics teacher at school couldn't tell me. So I thought, well, I'll go to uni and find out. Um, (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, I spent 15 years in the automotive industry, specializing in Six Sigma and lean manufacturing when that very first came over to the UK. Um, And then I realized that actually what made me tick was going around the production line each morning, making the guys smile, lifting people's moods, getting to know them. It was actually the people I wanted to understand, not the machines. Uh. So, yeah, I I had not envisaged doing what I do, but I went traveling for a year. Um, So I was about 30 by then. So that was quite a weird thing to do at that age in those days. Studied Spanish in Argentina. Um, came back and ended up as head of market research for one of the country's most disruptive brands and studied psychology, became an NLP trainer. And I eventually just decided I couldn't make enough difference in somebody else's business. And so I, 2003, launched my own company doing leadership development training and mentoring. And it's morphed many times over three sets of maternity leave. But yeah, I never would have dreamed I would be doing this kind of work. If you'd asked the 22-year-old me, you know, by the time you're in your 40s, how many books will you have published? She would have laughed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She'd be quite chuffed there, but she'd like, yeah, go me. (laughs) So what what, uh, time span were you in the automotive industry? Because I have a background in automotive. I wonder if we were in the same time. Yeah, well, I I left in about 2001. So that's when I went travelling. Actually, I switched out in 2001. 2001 was when my daughter was born and I left the automotive (laughs) industry that year to move into research science. So, ah, interesting. I'm not doing science myself. I don't do science. But uh, I was in HR. But anyway, oh, cool. That's brilliant. So that's a a nice segue because I wanted to talk to you about this. You've written eight books, which is no small feat. What was the first one on and what made you (laughs) write it? Um. So going insane on maternity leave is what made me write it. (laughs) Um, 
I have to confess that although I adore my children, um, I needed more of an intellectual challenge. And that's one of the things I love about my work. So, you know, for example, somebody asked me last night after my speaking gig if I could come and do a talk for their organization. And he said, but actually, we need it to be this way. And within minutes, my brain had actually designed the talk in my head. And I was missing that because you just don't get that with nappies and coffee mornings. <laughs> so I ran an online course for my tribe. I was I just qualified as a meditation teacher. So I ran a how to meditate, but the psychology of what our blocks are to meditating and how we get in our own way. And the course was really successful. And then I thought, you know what, let's turn this into a book. So I used all the feedback from the course. I translated it into a book. And that was my first book, The 28-Day Meditation Challenge. And that was nine years ago now. Wow. Well, I can't, I can't not ask you, uh, what are the blocks that get in our way to meditate? Because I'm literally moving into this space now. And, and I do find it difficult to have a quiet mind. So firstly, you don't have to have a quiet mind. That's the big <laughs> myth. <laughs> This is the biggest myth. So when I talk to people about, you know, meditation, they're like, oh, I wish I had the time. So we use time as the excuse, but that is just the symptom. What's under the surface is the fear of the mind having to go quiet, which I can do now for short periods of time. And that's taken a lot of practice. And I've formally trained to be a meditation teacher and I've learned so many disciplines. I can turn my thoughts off and I might get a couple of minutes of just pure silence. Yeah? yeah. But those thoughts are there. So we have this big fear. And also, I think we're in a society where busyness is what we use to avoid that introspection. So even if people are using apps to meditate, there's tinkly music, there's a voice in the background every few seconds. It's more guided visualization than that deep meditation that does reveal who we really are and maybe some of the ways that we're projecting our fears or our filters onto the world. So I think a lot of it is fear of if I really meditate, what's going to happen? Mm. You know, what, what in me is going to have to go and disappear? Which habits and crutches that I rely on might I have to give up? So it's much easier just not to do it. And also sitting still for 10 minutes takes a lot of energy. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but if somebody's tired and exhausted and stressed, they can't meditate. Oh, so, yeah. So in that situation, I would actually recommend somebody doing something called a progressive deep relaxation every day for 20 minutes, literally lying on their back and following a tense and release process to help the body's, um, the sympathetic nervous system and the power and the I got my brain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, is to help those get back in balance. You need to cut the stress hormones to be able to meditate well. And active mind, you do not dive straight into a 40-minute seated meditation. You need to calm the body and calm the mind and accept that the mind will wander five times, ten times a minute, and you just guide it straight back. Brilliant. Because you do you're a yoga teacher as well, aren't you? I am. So my clients call this mishmash engineer approved woo-woo. <laughs> I, I love the woo-woo I love I'm a bit left, I'm a good mix of left and right brain but I really am just getting it I think the woo-woo is the secret to business success actually I think it is so I, I talk to when my clients are ready I do talk to them about things like aligning their energy mm. yeah mm. Um, I call it courageous alignment because if you're not lined up mentally emotionally and energetically with being the person you need to be to create whatever you want to create, you're going to find you put obstacles in your way and life will conspire to make them bigger. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Now you just said, so you said when you were meditating or when one meditates, 
that they find potentially can find the real you who did you find when you started meditating (laughs) the okay I've gosh this is uh, this is a first okay only my my husband and my meditation master know this the first me I found was actually the angry me ah interesting yeah so this was probably about 11 12 years ago and the first layer I went through was actually that me that is a crusader that fights injustice, but who had picked up an awful lot of suitcases along the way that meant I could tip into that indignation that then flips to anger far too easily. And that was really tough because a lot of the practices we were being given to do um, kind of fueled that fire. (laughs) And it was a case of going straight through the middle. So that was the first version. Um, Certainly where I got to once I'd cleared that was it was the me that was very intuitive the me that knew where her boundaries were and the me that was very connected with her purpose. Mm. Whereas the me before that journey was definitely the busyness, the, the rat race. I'd taken my rat race and turned my business into a mini rat race. Yeah. Uh, yes. That's often the case, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, when you, and meditation doesn't have to stir the pot, but actually the whole purpose of it is to help you to connect with who you really are at that deepest level and to be who you are and to make the difference that you're here to make in the world and to line up with that version of you so sometimes that does mean you've got to put suitcases down and sometimes that means you've got to deal with the contents Mm. I think that's right people just you know a lot of the stress comes from avoiding feeling those emotions and dealing with the struggles that we've had in our life and you've got to move through it really to get you know to that next thing well thank you for sharing that and so much of this stuff I expected never mind a bouncy ball I thought you'd be sitting there floating on a cloud but um (laughs) I only do that on Fridays all right (laughs) anyway good now okay so your latest book is about imposter syndrome which is very interesting to me because of what I do and the people that I work with who uh, often have this. What made you get interested in researching this? So I've spent almost by accident the last 17 years specialising in it. So my first corporate mentoring client when I went and set up my own business turned up with this thing where this person was outwardly very, very successful and they were MD of a division of a company and they were using incredibly creative coping strategies to handle the fact they were terrified they'd be found out. And these coping strategies were astonishingly creative. I mean, seriously, they'd spent decades putting all of these strategies in place and there'd come a point where they'd been promoted to a level where the strategies weren't going to work anymore. And then the next client came along scared that they were going to be found out was not good enough. And then the next client came along, scared of that, well, who am I to apply for this promotion? And they want me to go for it. And if I do, my world will fall apart. And it took a few years before I realized it had a name. So I ended up specializing in it and being with the work I had as an NLP trainer and bringing in the engineer approved woo-woo, it meant that we could go in more deeply than just the usual mindset stuff that you would do in a coaching. Mm. So in this mentoring, it meant we could actually go and deal with the below the surface blocks that were triggering that behavior. It also meant I looked back at my engineering days and saw how I had struggled with that too. And how that then affected my performance and how I related with the people I was working with and the coping strategies and the masks I used to Mm. mentally cope and to toughen up. Um, So, yeah, it's been my thing for 17 years. Why I decided to write the book is 
too many of my friends and colleagues were kicking my backside saying, Claire, it's time. <laughs> <laughs> so that was one thing. And I, so I made them a promise I would. And also I don't have that many one-to-one clients now because I'm very busy. Mm. And I wanted to have a way to help the people that can't fit into my roster of 10 clients a year. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, why I did the research is I, as I was writing the book, you know what it's like. You think, oh, I'll just go and see what the latest UK research is on this. Okay, I'll just go and run a research study that will be the first <laughs> large scale study in the UK. <laughs> so so there, there was some research from the States, but there yeah. was nothing large scale that was a proper research study rather than just a phone poll mm. in the UK. So I put my head of market research hat on. Um, and my master's degree research hat on, designed the research study, and the findings were really shocking. I had no idea quite how widespread this was. And it, you know, some of the responses actually made me cry on how people were being affected by this. And so tell me, what were the sort of biggest things that you found from that? So the biggest thing is of the respondents, 52% of the female respondents were struggling with imposter syndrome daily or regularly, and that's in the last year alone. The figure that's caused the most shockwaves is that that proportion for men is 49. So it's not that much different, really. It's absolutely diddly squat difference, really. And there is an enormous difference, though, in how men versus women handle it. So the women were tending to, because we did the qualitative as well as the quantitative, the women were tending to lie awake at three in the morning, going into those drama stories of what if they find me out, and they were limiting their actions on their career and their visibility to protect themselves. What the guys were doing was pushing down the emotions, pushing on through that fear, getting the promotions, and then having their nervous breakdowns. Mm. Yeah. So the, the, you know, the effect on both from mental health and performance point of view was huge, but they were handling it differently. And one of the things we found in the research is that imposter syndrome is one of three core drivers now in the gender pay gap. Yes, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So until we deal with imposter syndrome, until we stop pretending it's not there because people are so good at hiding it, then we're not going to fix that. Well, I, I remember from my days as, you know, as an HR director where we used to look at uh, women in top positions, but a lot of the women just wouldn't apply because and there was this perception that they had to fill all of the boxes and meet all the criteria where the men would be much more likely to go, well, I can, can do a few, I'll have a go, you know, yeah. and they wouldn't do it. So I can see that aspect yeah. of it. Yeah, definitely. And then what happens if a woman gets promoted to a position that's triggered imposter syndrome for her, she will end up self-sabotaging that promotion. Interesting. And it's done at a subconscious level because there's a part of our unconscious mind wants to protect us and keep us safe. Yes. And it sees it as a potentially high risk threat. You know, it's up there with the saber toothed tiger. Mm. She can then end up with chronic stress, hypervigilance, resilience issues. It affects performance. And a lot of them I've seen for a lot of my colleagues in the business entrepreneurial world, what motivated them to leave their job that they previously loved was imposter syndrome, the fear of what if they finally realize I'm not good enough. Mm. So they jump ship. And then had it all in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was it. In the entrepreneurial world, the stats were not 49 and 52. They were 82%. Wow. Yeah. What, for women? For women women and for men. The the figures, again, were very similar. But what happens in the entrepreneurial world is you get some guys who are very rational, very emotion-free. They were affected less. 
and my sample size for the male entrepreneurs was so it was smaller than I'd want it to be to quote the exact stats, but the levels were similar. Mm-hmm. But the women, it was 82% in the last year have struggled daily or regularly in their business with imposter syndrome. Um, they described it causing them to do things like not have clear boundaries with clients, to give too much away for free, um, to have scope creep on projects, to start offering discounts even before they'd been asked and to undervalue themselves on pricing and not even to pitch the things, particularly with publicity, is not even to go for it. And in the speaking world, it's the waiting that bit too long to return the call. Yeah. Yeah. Or hearing what the audience size will be or what the audience makeup will be and just going, it's that flinch factor where you just kind of, oh, who am I to do that? Who am I to speak at that venue? Who am I to talk on that topic? What if I get on stage and they realize I don't know as much as they think I do? Yeah. God, it's, you know, it's fascinating. All those things, like I've done all of those things that you talked about like as an entrepreneur. Can, I can really relate to it. And I mean, I guess part of it, why it may be higher, I don't know, you, you can correct yeah. me, is at least if you're employed, the employer has faith in you. They, they believed in you to get to that position. Yeah. But when you're yeah. an entrepreneur, it's you that's got to believe in yourself. Exactly. Before you, you can sell stuff. You don't have the peer group. You don't have the appraisal system. You don't have somebody you can go and cry on their shoulder. The other thing that we've got in the entrepreneurial world, on the online world particularly, is comparisonitis. Every time we go into LinkedIn or Facebook, there's a feed full of people with photoshopped images created by graphic designers telling us how wonderful their latest program is. And we start judging ourselves based on our guess at how successful a stranger is. It's yeah. really interesting, isn't it? And yeah. I, I heard something, I don't know if this resonates with you, I heard something recently about this, because I always used to, you know, being completely honest, I would see those things and I'd be like, oh, I don't run, you know, I, I'm as good as, you know, and get that sort yeah. of like slightly resentful feeling. And I heard recently, and this is in the woo-woo space yeah. as well, that if you don't celebrate other people's success, then you are actually pushing away success yourself because you're telling your mind that, you know, that's a bad thing. And is that, is that true? Is there any truth to that as far as you I, think? I can see how that would fit for people. I think for me, it's more about I'm then going into my, my negative vibes. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. If I look at it from a scientific point of view, what I'm doing is reinforcing the neural pathways in my brain that success is bad and that you'll be judged. Yeah, and I'm also going into my complaining brain, as I call it. Yeah, because I'm complaining that the other person's successful and I'm not, for example. Now, what that does is it programs the reticular activating system filters in your brain that filter the sensory input from the outside world to spot more examples of success being bad and life not being fair. So it will actually retrain your brain to spot stuff that makes you feel jealous. God, isn't that interesting? Yeah, Yeah. it's at a woo-woo and at a neuroscience level. And I think it's very easy if somebody else is saying, I just got onto onto Forbes or wherever it is that you've been dreaming of getting. It can be really hard to celebrate that, particularly if their humble brag is frankly not so humble. Because we we can read the intention behind these posts, yeah? Absolutely. (laughs) Sometimes we're actually reacting to that rather than the success so sometimes it's just our intuition saying oh this is not a congruent post this is a humble brag pretending to be a humble brag but actually it's a yeah i'm playing a raspberry (laughs) so yeah Yeah. 
Yeah, and I would say if I get jealous of someone, firstly, I take a step back and say, okay, what's really true in this? And what is just the graphic designer and Photoshop fluff? And then I'll look at what is it that's triggered me? And I might think, actually, their sales copy is fantastic. Great. So I need to work on my sales copy in my short form ads. Yeah. Or, okay, I'm feeling a bit jealous because they've just got that opportunity that I didn't even know was there. Well, okay, I didn't know it was there. How do I make sure that in future that kind of thing doesn't pass me by? So I use it as a way of looking in the mirror at what do I need to change about myself because clearly this has triggered me to say there's part of me thinks I should be doing this stuff. That's exactly right. So it's, it's what winding you up is what you need to work on, basically. <laughs> Interesting. Exactly. Gosh. Now, so I, I, um, I wanted to ask you, have you managed to ditch imposter syndrome? Yes. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I will elaborate if you like. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to move. I'm going to. I'm assuming it's in the book, which I want to talk about to directly yeah. at the end. But I might get you to talk about it in a specific way. So, okay, because I'm happy to describe how it feels when you have. Good. Well, let's let's come back to that. So, yeah. imposter syndrome is obviously something that I have to work with a lot of my speaking clients on. Yeah, and um, and this is the speaking club, so people who may have imposter syndrome around their speaking um can you give some tips around the best way to tackle that and then maybe lead into what it feels like when you haven't got it like you so what I did for the book was I looked at what had worked for the last 15 16 years for my clients and pulled out the key stages so this was my inner process six sigma engineer turning the mishmash that I do with clients into something that you can actually use at home step by step. Each step builds on the previous one to go as close as I can to guaranteeing that you will create a breakthrough. And step one is actually ditching the myths because that's what keeps us stuck is imposter syndrome is incurable. I see that daily in expert articles or it's inevitable or it's a sign of success. You know, I should be proud. It means I'm a high achiever or I, I need it to keep me humble or I need the fear to give me the edge when I'm performing. So the first thing I do in the book is I actually help you to deconstruct those myths because the unconscious mind won't let you create a change it believes is impossible. So we have to clear out all the reasons why this change is impossible and then you can dive into the fun stuff. So step two is taming your inner critic. Yeah. So that voice in your head is being able to press pause and start to teach it to be your biggest cheerleader. And we use neuroplasticity for that. That's the ability of the brain to rewire itself. So that's how we all learn to ride bikes or if we drive cars or speak a foreign language, is how to proactively press pause without going to war with your inner critic and trying to paper over the cracks with positive thinking, is how to go to the nub of that stuff and say, okay, here's a process. Yeah. So here's one, if you like, for your, for your listeners, can I teach it really quickly now? Go. Oh, yes. Go for it. I'd love that. So, <clears throat> you're about to go on stage and your inner critic's kicking off and you know it's imposter syndrome. A, B, C takes 60 seconds. Okay. Accept, breathe, choose. So all of us can remember A, B, C, accept. Okay. That's an inner critic thought. That's an imposter syndrome thought. What that does is it gives you that detachment. It means you don't dive into the drama because normally that thought will remind us of every time we've ever fumbled a word or had something go wrong on stage. You're just saying, okay, imposter syndrome thought, just pause. Then what you do is you go through neutral, like changing gear in a car, okay? Because you can't flip from 
terrified to elated. The body won't let you because you've got the hormones running through that create the emotions. So you need to press reset on the nervous system. The breathing, three deep sighing breaths. Okay, breathing in through the nose. <sighs> so do that three times. That starts to reset. And then you spend about a minute just closing your eyes and focusing on your breathing, where you're breathing in your body and allowing your breathing to slow. So that gets you back into relaxed and alert instead of the fight, flight, freeze response. The choose, I use a ratio of one to three. So you've had your negative thought, you've accepted it, you've done the breathing, the choose is choose to think three thoughts about that situation that are positive, encouraging, or bring a sense of relief. And the ninja tip is allow yourself to actually experience those emotions in the body. So you turn it from a cognitive process to a physical process. If you do that, over time, it takes 60 seconds. You can do it in the loose before a gig or before a pitch. So it's an emergency first aid technique that means you don't have to have one of the major side effects of imposter syndrome, which is your mind goes blank because the body's in fight, flight, freeze, and it's diverted the blood flow to the primal part of the brain that's not very good at giving speeches. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely right. <laughs> so this process resets it. So the blood flow goes back to the prefrontal cortex. So you can say your brilliant stuff, you can answer the questions, and you're not doing it from that place of secret terror. So ABC, and I'm really happy if you think, Sarah, that listeners would like it. And I'm happy to have an MP3 and a cheat sheet they could download for that technique if you think they might find that useful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that'd be oh, great. We can yeah. set up a link. <laughs> okay, cool. We'll put it in the show notes. Thank you for yeah. that. Well, that's great. I will use that myself going forward. <laughs> absolutely. So, so that's, that's sort of step two is the inner critic. Step three is where we look at the limiting beliefs. This is mm -hmm. starting to go below the surface, the hidden blocks, the secret fears and the excuses. Yeah. Step four is where you really go to that identity level of taking off the masks is clearing out the root causes. And that all kind of sounds quite painful, but actually it's surprisingly easy when you've laid those foundations. Yeah. yeah. Um, and step five, I like to take people beyond okay into really their purpose, you know, becoming the leader you were born to be. It doesn't matter what we're doing. We can all lead in some way. Yeah. And so step five is where you really get to consciously create the future that you've wanted. Now that you're clear from that stuff, you'll find that what you want from the future changes. So we wrap up with that as step five. So that is my five-step process for ditching imposter syndrome. Oh, that's brilliant. And is that all in the book there? That's all in the book. So I held absolutely nothing back. That is what I do with my mentoring clients. The processes that are in the book, there are exercises, there are worksheets, there's a companion workbook, the reader's fault comes with MP3s and videos and things. Um, that is what I do with my clients. Fantastic. Well, I will definitely be putting a link in the show notes to that. And I'll come on to that so soon to where people can get it. So speaking is obviously a big part of your business, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's um, in fact, this year I made, you know, like at the end of a year, you think, do I really want my business to look like this next year? Yeah. And I made a really, really gutsy decision that I wanted my big priority this year to be speaking gigs. It felt quite scary because I actually shut off a few income streams to make the time to do that. And I set myself a goal of having 12 paid speaking gigs by the end of the year. I've already booked 10 of them and it's February the 6th today. Oh, that's brilliant. Congratulations. <laughs> um, I've actually cut almost all of my social media mm. in order to make time to find the speaking gigs, which I haven't actually had to look for one yet. 
And it's amazing the energy it's freed up by cutting at least 90% of my social media time. Absolutely amazing how much more time I've got and how it feels really, really exciting. Some of the audiences I'm going to get to speak to this year, I would never have dreamed I'd get in front of. And a lot of that's happened because of the book, but it's also happened because I decided that was my focus. Every single one has been, I heard about you, or I know somebody that saw you speak, or I was in the audience. And I'm sure when we talk about that alignment, yes, it's because I put the message out there to whoever's listening, right, yeah. this year, my primary focus is speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of the online world, instead of, you know, the, the, the virtual stuff, I actually want to be there in the physical world. I want to be on the stages rather than doing webinars. And the universe has conspired to help make that happen. I mean, we've extended it to 24. I suspect we will end up at 36. Wow, that would be yeah. fantastic. Yeah, and I'm, I'm doing unpaid gigs as well. So yeah. I've got a couple of charity gigs I'm doing. I'm doing one in South Africa, which is going to be amazing. Um, but it's because I set that intention and I decided that I had to cut something in order to make the space, the headspace yeah. and the physical energy to be able to support that dream. Cool. That's brilliant. It's amazing what happens when you uh, use the universe and inspired action together. <laughs> exactly. Fantastic stuff. Good. And how easy do you find it putting thoughts together? I mean, you mentioned earlier that you pretty much designed one quickly in your head. Hmm. Does it yeah. come easily to you? Or? So my NLP trainers training did that for me. Right. Uh, that taught me how to create a course that's actually going to work you know, at a conscious and a subconscious level. And then the Six Sigma is all about the logic of process flow and how to design a process so that success is inevitable. Right. Um, And the two combined, and I've got some process I use, I use a process called, I call timeline, where I walk, I walk the plank. So I literally put myself in the body of a member of the audience and where they are in their space in life. And I walk through a talk to, to understand which bits might confuse them. Yeah. Or where maybe I'm going off on an unnecessary tangent. Um, so I will create that structure. I create the talk. And even while I'm giving the talk, if the audience is not responding the way I thought they might to a certain area, I make sure I've got my backup in my flow to be able to say, okay, cut this bit short. Let's go here instead. Yeah, it's absolutely good to be reading present. And you can only do that if you're present Exactly. At the time, no. If you're in your head thinking about scripts and words and that all that good stuff, and do you yeah. use stories and humour in your speaking? I do, I do, and there's nothing. I, I could not be a stand-up comedian. I have so much respect for stand-up comedians because <laughs> it's such a courageous thing to do. Um, so I do use humour, and nine times out of ten, people get the joke. I had one last night where I waited for the laugh and it didn't come, and I'm like. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so you just deep breath and you move on and you wait for the next one <laughs> exactly and, yeah and that's quite rare but it's like actually I thought that was funny okay that's fine <laughs> I'm, live and learn um so yeah even after a decade or more of doing this I do still sometimes have those flunk moments and what I've learned is you just don't let them phase you yeah mm. um but yeah stories a lot um I the one thing I don't use that a lot of people in my industry do use is I don't use client case studies. Oh, right. Okay. Well, I guess you can't in some ways. I just never want a client to sit there and think that was me. Even mm. if I've amalgamated 
I don't want anybody ever sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, what if she uses me on stage? Mm. So that's like when I talked about my first ever client right at the beginning, mm. I didn't even mention the gender. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't want anybody ever thinking that they're going to, you know, open their heart to me and that I'm going to use them as a story when I'm teaching. So I tend to use more, yeah, let's imagine if there's a guy called Fred going to talk to his boss. Yeah. yeah. So I will tell the stories that way. I'll tell stories about my past. Um, I, with his permission, used a story last night about my son and an mm. experience he's recently been through. So I use them a lot. I use metaphors a lot. One of the things I will do on a training course, so it's a longer event, is I will use nested stories where, as yeah. you know, you start one story and you start the next one, you start the next one, you finish one, finish one, finish one. Yeah. Because that works so well as teaching at an unconscious level um, and also as pre-teaching a concept. Because if somebody's already heard it as a story, it reduces the conscious mind's resistance to a concept that might create change. Absolutely. Oh, some brilliant stuff there. Oh, I could talk with you for ages about that stuff. Right. I've, before we um, tell people where they can find yeah. out more about you, book you to speak, get the book, etc. I've got some standard questions. Okay. Um, what's, I, I think I may already know this, but what's the best thing speaking has done for you? <sighs> so it, it's allowed me to get my message out there and make a difference in a way that gives me the instant feedback. Yeah. So you can, and you can use, you can adapt what you're saying to help the people go on the journey. You can see they need to go on. And that face to face, that live connection, being able to work with the energy of the people in the room. Um, you know, I often don't get to sleep till three in the morning after a speaking gig. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's, it gives you a buzz. You should try stand up. I think you'd enjoy that actually. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I need a good coach. (laughs) (laughs) Now, um, what about that worst speaking gig? Has there been one? Yes, 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 yes. My first ever after qualifying as an NLP trainer. You know, when you've just qualified in something and you're slightly uber confident. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, I can do this. I can take on the world. I was commissioned by a government business group to deliver a training for local magistrates. And it was my first paid gig after finishing my NLP trainers training. I took the brief from the government agency people. Um, she was doing all the liaising and I showed up and I'd had to travel through four inches of snow to get there. So I was feeling quite proud of myself for having made it. After five minutes, a very polite lady said, um, I'm terribly sorry. I think you've been misbriefed. This isn't what we want at all. Oh, Could you yeah. talk to us about this instead? And I stood there and went, I spent two days preparing this training. Oh, no. <laughs> and I said, could I just have a couple of minutes? And I turned around and I had to, t- I couldn't leave the room. And I turned my back on them and I just did two minutes of, okay, what can I do? And I managed to pull enough out of the bag to run that session. I found out afterwards I had been completely misbriefed. And I also found out afterwards that the magistrates thought it was unpaid. Oh, no. <laughs> so this taught me so much. What a gift in your first session is always have a contract. Always make sure that you've actually spoken to the client and you haven't gone through a third party. And be prepared to think on your feet if your audience doesn't want what it is you think they wanted. 
that's brilliant what a great example and we all do we all go through it it's but it's that's a great the first one to hit hit all those things is brilliant and there there was then a second so it's like i did pull it back together (laughs) um now what is the book that's had most influence on your life and why (sighs) okay i'm going to say something that you might think is really really naff (laughs) doubt it okay um I have read hundreds of personal development books. There's not one particular one that stands out. But the books I go back to if I'm feeling down is the Harry Potter series. Oh, I love Harry Potter. Yeah. Yay. Now, the, reason, the reason is it, it reminds me the, the, the power of magic, the power of what we believe, the power to overcome adversity, the power to lose yourself in a good story. And as a writer, so two of my books are novels. Um, yeah, as a writer, I think it's the biggest gift you can give a reader is to allow them to escape their reality and experience life from a different perspective. So, yeah, every summer I reread the series. Um, oh, you know, I'll have them on Audible. Um, I've, so I've, I've also read them in Spanish and German because <laughs> I got bored with English. Um, <laughs> You're a bit of an overachiever there, I think. <laughs> well, I did, I did study in Germany and I, I studied Spanish when I went on my run away from my corporate career thing yeah Um, (laughs) and that was something to do on long bus rides but yeah it's just the there are so many life lessons when we look at those books and how you know even if you look at somebody like Snape and how we all think he's evil until the very end when you realize that actually his motives were very different to what we'd expected we judge people we make assumptions about them and nobody is who they you know who they appear to be on the outside deep underneath yeah. I was to say, spoiler alert, when, when we're doing the editing of sorry, the show. Sorry. <laughs> um, um, yeah. <laughs> what's the best bit of business advice you've had and why? Focus on one thing. That's made the biggest difference for me. Um, since about two years ago, I made the decision for my public focus to be imposter syndrome. Yeah, it had always been the core, but there was lots else I did. Since then, people tell me, oh, my God, I see you everywhere. Um, I've been quoted in two press articles today from journalists I've never even heard of. Um, it, it just happens. When you have that one focus, it gives you, you – know, so we all like to be multi-passionate, as Marie Folio calls it, but when you focus on that one thing that you do really, really well and everything else is like the 10%, you make a much bigger impact than if you split your energy 10 ways. I love that. Um, Okay, last question. If you had to pick one mentor, and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Without a shadow of a doubt, my meditation master. Oh, I love that. Yeah, um, he hasn't always told me what I wanted to hear. And he and I have had moments where I haven't then had contact with him for a number of months. And I don't work with him one-to-one at the moment because he's kind of retiring and he's got some ill health. But if ever I hit one of those real kind of crises crunch points, I will often just go and have a chat with him in my head. And it's amazing how the wisdom he shared with me as a mentor will come through. And he helps me see that my answers are always there inside me if I can just shut up long enough to hear them no I'm, I'm gonna have to get you back on the show because <laughs> I, I think that we've just scratched the surface of a lot of this stuff which yeah. I certainly want to go deeper on and I'm sure will actually be really useful for people in the audience so I will get that sorted Thank out you. um now if people do want to help you fill those 36 
speaking thoughts, <laughs> um, or buy your books or get your name, where's the best place for them to go? ClaireYosa.com. Okay, that's that's kind of my hub. And if ditching imposter syndrome is your thing, I have a whole separate website just on that, ditchingimpostorsyndrome.com. That was there. It's resources, videos, articles, more about the book. I mean, seriously, it's like change your life forever for the price of a pizza. <laughs> I love that. Nice one. Nice, nice one. No brainer. <laughs> nice tagline. Good. So I'll put both of those into the show notes. And you are, I know you've cut down your social, but you are on social media, I, I am. So I'm mainly on um, Twitter and on LinkedIn. Claire underscore Yosa on Twitter because it's the olden days where you had to split your name or the search didn't work back in about 2007. Um, and LinkedIn, it's just Claire Yosa. There's only one of me usually. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. You've shared some real nuggets. Thank you, out. Sarah. Um, lots for people to unpack there. And as I say, I think I'm going to get you back on the show because I think you've got lots more to offer us. Well, it's thank been great fun. So I'd love to. Thank yeah, you so yeah. much. Thank you. Wow, we covered so much ground there. And this is probably another one you'll want to listen to again. Claire's got loads of good stuff to share and I've put the link in the show notes to her website and that ABC process she talked about. So go and check it out. And if you have a speaking uh, conference or something that's still going to happen and you want to book Claire, just check out her website. You can have a look at what she offers there too. So I hope you enjoyed our interview and it's inspired you to tackle imposter syndrome if it shows up in your life. As I mentioned at the start of the show, if you're listening on the 12th or 13th of March, you may still have time to jump on one of the two live training workshops left. And one of the specific things I'm covering besides the blueprint is a mindset hack that will rid you of the public speaking anxiety associated with that imposter syndrome. So if you want to grab a space for one of those, head over to thespeakingclub.com slash masterclass today. Thank you again for joining me. And if you do like The Speaking Club, please take a moment to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. And in the meantime, all that I want to say to you is have a fantastic week, stay safe, but do still go out and grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. You don't need to waste more time searching for an answer when the most powerful tools to becoming a great speaker and growing your business are already in your possession your stories. The trouble is that many people believe that either they haven't got a story to tell or that you need to be a natural born storyteller to use them successfully. But neither of these things are true. Everyone has stories and I want to help you discover yours and share them more powerfully with my new freebie, My Story Wizard. In three steps, it's going to guide you to find your stories, power them up with humour and other tricks and share them in a way that connects with your audience and sells your thing. If that sounds good to you, then head over to mystorywizard.com and go and grab yours right now.